We all have these scripts for our lives, a story we want to play out a certain way, and then being disappointed when things don't work out exactly as we had hoped or planned. This week, we have a film guru and screenwriter, Chad D. Miguel, here to talk about the power and pattern of stories in our lives and why knowing all these elements will make you live out your life story differently. Let's dive in. Chad, it is so good to have you on the No Gray Areas podcast, mainly because we've known each other for some, I think it's going on over 15 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's been been a while. Which means we were both young when we met. <laughs> yeah. A few rings around the tree. <laughs> yes. There, yeah. there are a few more rings around the tree. <laughs> but let me, I mean, first of all, for the audience, oh my goodness, I'm so excited about this podcast because I can guarantee you, I can promise you as an audience, you'll never watch movies the same again once you understand this because we're going to talk about story structure and for some of them, they may go, that sounds boring. Not at all. It's, it's fascinating. But let's back up a little bit, give them a little context. So you and I met over 15 years ago. We were in Africa, right? Yeah, that's right. We were there for a couple different reasons, but ended up... Um, we were working on a project and uh, ended up being roommates. And I, at the and time, that was an accident. That was an accident. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, it was kind of serendipitous. We were both supposed to have our own rooms and <laughs> yeah. they made a mistake. And so I'm watching footage that you shot that day every night because I had taught an editing class in yeah. high school. So I was an expert, of course. Um, that's a joke, that's, that's sarcasm. <laughs> but, but, but then we, we ended up having some good deep conversations yeah. too. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was really neat. I would I'd come in and you know share footage of, of what I had been capturing that day, um, being in uh, it was in Uganda, and mm -hmm. uh, and I would say, Pat, what do you think of this shot? Do you think this is working? And that just developed um, uh, a friendship that we've had to this day. And I would try to drop like like I knew what I, I'd be like. I think we need a good <laughs> reflection shot, right? So I, yeah, you definitely you made the work better. Yeah. Yes, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I remember uh, there had been a film that had come out, a documentary that had come out that you and mm -hmm. I had both watched that really impacted us deeply. Yeah. And we started saying, man, what if what if we ever could do a story like that together? Like yeah. just you know, it was just things we were saying. Yeah. And a couple of years later, I'm in a meeting with the vice mayor of Phoenix mm. and we hear about this issue of child sex trafficking. Yeah. And again, everyone knows that that happens in the U.S. now. But at that time, yeah. when you would talk about child, child sex trafficking, it would be, well, that's in India or yeah. Thailand or. But it was like, no, it's here. Mm. So I called you up and I said, Chad, that story that we talked about, I think mm. I think we have it. Yeah. Yeah. And that launched us on a, a journey or a quest. Yeah. Yeah. Use those words on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Very intentional. Yes. Yeah. That was a, that was an amazing season working together and, and collaborating to create a feature documentary that had um, advocacy and awareness about the plight of sex trafficking of, of minors um, in the Phoenix area. And it was an incredible time. We worked with um, government officials, nonprofit, ministry leaders, really um, uh, an idea that... Um, you had had led and spearheaded around what would it look like if the city came together in a way to be a voice against this kind of evil that was taking place and um, uh, became an advocacy tool that we used to help raise that raise that awareness and amplify those those children that had been and continue unfortunately to be impacted by sex trafficking yeah, yeah. and we had it like so many things throughout history we had no idea the impact it would have we yeah. thought 
well, maybe this can raise awareness locally. Mm. But we ended up screening that in, in New York, in Chicago, mm. in Seattle, in L.A., I mean, really all over the country. And yeah. it was one of the first documentaries. There were numerous that came out around that time, but it was one of the first documentaries that were raising awareness mm. on that and was part of this collaboration that was yeah. amazing to see. And the church actually being part of that. There were 72 churches in Greater Phoenix that were part of spearheading that. It, it was remarkable to see the power that happens when um, when people of faith come together, when the city comes together, and to really harness and leverage and see the impact that a person's story has and, and how when that's told, it has the impact to, to make a great change, to, to really to change the world. Mm-hmm. There were some after effects of that for you, wasn't there? Um, some, some I, I'm, I don't know for yeah. sure. I don't know that we've ever talked about this. There certainly was for me. Mm. I have a, a, a good friend that's, um, he has a background in photojournalism. And I remember that he picked me up at the airport and he said, it really looks like that you're, you've been wearing uh, this, this experience in a way, because you do when you, when he you, could see that on you. Yeah, he could, he could sense that. I think when you live in the world of, of telling these kinds of stories, um, that certainly is is its own kind of burden in a way and i think that he could tell that that had been you know having an impact and i think i think for all of us when you when you experience um that kind of evil um that's just unfathomable it definitely it definitely has an impact yeah. um you know certainly we're we're in no way like those that work every day in and out yeah. of that yeah. but um yeah i think it i think it made a mark on all of us yeah. that that worked on that yeah. time. You can't wade into the muck and mire of this world and the the, the deep injustices of this world and not have it yeah. <clears throat> deeply affect you. There's yeah. no doubt. Like I didn't realize it at the time, but in hindsight, I look back and go, I would never be the same. Yeah. Like that, there was that, yeah. that was one of those markings yeah. in my life journey. Um, if we compared it to like a chapter book of, mm. of our life, that was one where you dog ear that chapter and be like, that was, yeah. That yeah. changed the, the trajectory in some ways. It's really interesting you, you mentioned that because, you know, as we as we get into talking further about this idea of story and story principles and understanding our own lives through that lens, um, you often find in a story where um, as a character makes or begins their quest or their journey, they realize that um, they'll never be the same again. Yeah. that there's a transformation that can happen, but there's also many deaths that take place along the way many as well. Many deaths? Many deaths. Uh, yeah. Eric. Okay, so let's jump into this then, Chad. <laughs> this is why this I am so excited about this. I'm going to love this interview because I really am not going to have to work at it. You just did a perfect transition, which just... <laughs> a good segue, yeah. It was perfect yeah. how you transitioned to that. <laughs> so this is going to be the easiest interview ever. But let's transition. Tell us really quick, like an overview of story structure. And again, audience, Spoiler I alert. promise you, you'll never watch movies the same again <laughs> once you understand this. I didn't. We were just talking before we came in here that you loaned me a book about 15 years ago by Robert McKee called Story. It talks about story structure, act one, act two, act mm-hmm. three, the inciting yeah. incident, all these things you can talk about. I still have that. I'll get it back to you someday, okay? <laughs> so give, give us an overview. Pretend like, okay. just imagine that most of our audience has no idea what story structure is. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, yeah, it, it can have an impact in terms of, am I going to be able to enjoy movies the same way again? So hopefully this is not a spoiler alert, but but enhances that. Um, I'll back up a little bit. When I um, first started out my career, I was teaching screenwriting and filmmaking at the college level. 
and kind of looking at these storytelling principles that are used in Hollywood, storytelling principles that you'll see um, really used in like TV shows and whatnot, storytelling principles that are based on um, timeless ways of connecting with an audience. And it was interesting, as I was sharing these, I thought this this is a helpful way to, to also look at our lives. And, and I think, you know, when we hear about God saying that he's the author and perfecter of our faith, there's these kind of eternal rules that are written into a story, if you will, that mm-hmm. seem to transcend um, time and space. And so um, every story tends to have with it, or at least those stories that we know and we love when we go and see a movie, um, effectively a, a three-act structure. Um, or some kind of a structure where you could you could call it um, it's it's set up where you're introduced to an ordinary world and you meet a character or a series of characters and their ordinary world is their status quo. So it's the way that life has been for some time. So if you look at like the movie Rocky, Rocky was a as he called himself a two bit boxer in Philadelphia and just trying to make ends meet. Um, you think about a movie like Finding Nemo, we're introduced to this dad who's a clownfish and um, he's kind of neurotic, overly protective, and that's that's his status and quo. They, and they do that, like in a movie, they do that sometimes in a few minutes, right? Just like, a few, yeah, usually usually it's about 10 to, 10 to 25 minutes and you get a sense of this is the way that this character's world has been for some time mm-hmm. and then something happens. And it's an event which um, is often referred to as the inciting incident. It's a catalyst that disrupts that character's status quo. It does it to such a degree that they can no longer go back to the way things were. So Rocky is offered the chance to fight Apollo Creed, um, kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh, Marlin in Finding Nemo, most of his children are killed by this Barracuda except for Nemo. So the world is radically disrupted as a result of that, the character is offered to go onto a quest to pursue a goal that helps to, in fact, reconcile that disruption. So for Marlin in Finding Nemo, it's Finding Nemo. His son is taken uh, by the scuba diver after this inciting incident, and it's and his it's journey. completely disrupted his life on yeah. that little piece of coral <laughs> with his neurotic self. Yeah, it son. changed yeah, everything. Changed everything. Yeah, his life could no longer go back to the way it was. And, and Rocky, it's, it's him wrestling with do I have what it takes to go the distance with Apollo Creed? It's Luke Skywalker being asked to become a Jedi with with Obi Wan Kenobi, and so and um, so with with the best movie ever made, Braveheart. Yeah, <laughs> I used to I used to joke when I would when I would preach at churches, I would several times a year weave in some Braveheart thing. There, not, so, not but, in a kilt though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I would not preach in a kilt, but I would somehow weave that it would in. Leave a mark, yeah. But in, so in that movie, what you're describing is you you kind of learn this world that they're in. Yeah, it's the ordinary world. Yeah, and his wife is killed, yeah. and that's like this inciting incident, and it launches him on a quest and a journey's life would never be the same. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he would be marked by that. And, and he but won- every good story structure has that. Every good story structure has that. And so the, the character, they're in the pursuit of this goal. And as they're pursuing this, things get harder and harder and the conflict escalates to where um, this is resolved at the end of Act 2 and Act 3 in a kind of yeah, resolution. Yeah. So as we unpack this story structure, I want our audience to just really watch for these two things. And each, you're going to unpack four parts of story structure. You already mentioned one of them, but you're going to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. But I want them to notice two main things. One of them, 
it's going to change the way they watch movies. Yeah. Okay. So the inciting incidents, for example, once I understood that, my kids would roll their eyes when we watch a movie at home because <laughs> we'd get into it. Also, and I'd pause it and be like, "There's the inciting incident." Or we'd be in movie theaters and I'd lean over to my wife and go, "That's the inciting incident." <laughs> so I don't know if it's, as I wanted to sound like a know-it-all, but but it is fascinating. Yeah. I really think our audience who's listening right now are going to mm. start paying attention. Yeah. To that and go, oh. That event right there that just happened, yeah, that changes everything for the character. It does. Yeah. And we often ask ourselves, like, why why would this be the case? Why are these the the tools, if you will, that that Hollywood will deploy? And when we see the movies and the shows that we love, there's this there's this consistency or a pattern. And um, I think there's a couple of eternal clues that we can look at that speak to our own life story. So George Lucas, when he was writing the first Star Wars, based it off of this book called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And A Hero with a Thousand Faces is written by Joseph Campbell, a mythologist who effectively said, there's, you know, when we look at through, through time and space, there are all of these different myths. And it's effectively a hero that has a, a, a thousand different faces. But each of these stories really share the same features, um, all of these different myths. Um, what really kind of helped me to, to get there and understand this is when C.S. Lewis uh, was coming to faith, he was good friends with Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, and they both love stories mm -hmm. and creating story-based mm -hmm. worlds. They were and, both masters at writing them, weren't they? Yeah, mas yeah, yeah, masters of storytelling. And Tolkien, um, a man of faith, was engaging with Lewis early on in his academic career, and and he said, um, he said, he said to Lewis, he said, what, what, what is it that you love most? in this life and, and lewis said well it's it's the stories that i inhabit and the stories that i love to to tell and write it's these myths that we spend so much time in and, and tolkien said well what if there was one myth and this myth was true and all the great myths and stories pointed to that and that really became a kind of inciting incident or catalyst for lewis to become um, a man of faith and to discover jesus and so when we we look at we look at the great story that our lives uh, point to, it's it's the story of of God who is come into the world, a world in in Act One, which you could say is Genesis One, the ordinary world, the way that the world should be, and there was a great disruption, and that disruption happened in Genesis Three, the fall, and everything was turned upside down. Every day we watch the news or hear the news on social media or whatever, we're hearing about that upheaval of that story, right? Yeah. Like it's not the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. Things are things are not the, the way that they're supposed to be. And so enter in the hero, the ultimate hero, Jesus. We, we can make the mistake of thinking we're the hero of our lives or that uh, these various characters in the Bible are the hero, but it's really, it's, it's Jesus that's the hero who's in pursuit of a goal to rescue and reconcile and redeem the whole world. And that is most of scripture is act two, where we see the resolution of that, where he redeems and makes all things new. And so um, we're drawn to these stories, I think, because um, as Tolkien said, they speak to the greater truth. And as, as characters, we are caught up into this great myth, this great myth that's true, this great story. And, and our, our lives echo that. So stories often, I think, are a clue to what's eternally written mm -hmm, in our hearts. Mm -hmm. There's actually a verse that talks about eternity is written in our hearts. Yeah. So Tolkien was basically saying every story that you look at throughout humanity really has a lot of the same structure. So we're talking about movies right now. Yeah. But go back 700 years, they're sitting around a fire, right? And someone's yeah. telling a story. And that story would be similar structure where there's someone yeah. who's 
in a struggle yeah. to overcome, to learn, to find courage or whatever it is. Yeah. But Tolkien's point was all those stories point to one story. Mm. That, that's what you're saying? Yeah. And yeah. that's what caught C.S. Lewis's attention. Yeah, that, that all these stories are are echoes of of the great story where you have, um, and, and this is true, if you, if you read Hero with a Thousand Faces, there's a character that, um, experiences a death that goes to the land of the dead that that is is remade and is reborn and it's well, well what is you know what what story does that ultimately point to mm-hmm. we look at uh, the cross and the resurrection and and how there's um, a redemption and a renewal that happens as a result of that and so if it's true that that God is the author of our stories and if we're part of the great story, then then how how does that impact how we look at our lives through that lens? If he's authoring that, how, how is he authoring it? Yeah, what what exactly yeah. might he be yeah. up to as as the author of our own stories? Well, once again, beautiful transition because that goes right into what I I, I said. There's two things I want them to watch for. One of them mm. is just going to change how they yeah. watch movies. Yeah. Pay attention to this. But if we as an audience take to heart what you're talking about today, mm. it has the potential of really changing our lives in yeah. a sense. Um, uh, transformational in yeah. a lot of ways. And we'll realize the reason that I'm connected to stories and the reason that I love stories, the reason I love a good movie mm. or a good book is because I see myself in those stories. Yeah. Like I, we, every single person listening has had inciting incidents in their life. Yeah. They have conflict in their life. They have to learn. They don't learn courage by mm. reading about it. They learn courage because they were in a situation that they were forced to learn courage in. Right. Yeah. So I, yeah. I there's two things as we unpack this. Yeah. It's going to change how you watch movies. Mm. And if you allow it, it should really be transformational. So let's start unpacking this. Inciting incident. You explained a little bit what that is. If they start paying attention in movies, they can be annoying to their friends or spouse (laughs) like I was and lean over and mention. But it's always not just one inciting incident, right? Right. So a story is built around a series of these uh, which you could also call reversals. So So when a character is moving forward and is Marlin is in the pursuit of finding Nemo and things get harder and harder. He, he, he comes upon these events that um, take him in directions that he did not expect, did not anticipate, and usually don't often want. So for him, it's getting caught up with like the, the sea turtles and, and meeting yep, Dory yep. who annoys him, but also is- The sharks in the 12-step program. The sharks in the 12, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are our friends. Yes. But these are all necessary to help propel the character along in their story. Um, and it's it's often true in our lives where we have these kind of reversals where we think that life should play out a certain way. We, we probably all have life scripts for ourselves where we think that this is the way that life should unfold for me. These are the kinds of things that I expect to happen or should happen. And when that doesn't happen, we can often ask this question. It's a question that Frodo asked Gandalf in the Fellowship of the Ring, and he said, I, I don't understand why this is happening. I wish none of this would have happened. And this is as he's starting out in his journey and he's trapped in a mine. And Gandalf says to him, it's not up to us to choose the events that happen in our lives. What's up to us is to choose how we will respond to that. And that's so true because each of us have these, these moments in our life where we may be asking the question, God, why is this happening to me? Why am I experiencing this tragedy, this event, this this moment of brokenness? Um, and and the author is deeply invested in that. That question is important, um, but the all the author is also asking another question, and that question is, 
who is this person becoming as a result of this? That each of these experiences of reversals that that move a character along in their story counterintuitively, unexpectedly serve a greater purpose. And the purpose behind that is to transform that character. Um, we, I think we often think of ourselves as, I think sometimes living a kind of static reality that I'm just getting up and life is about to-do lists mm-hmm. and achieving mm-hmm. things. But what an author understands is that um, a person in a story is never static. They're in the process of becoming. And as Bobette Buster, who's a, uh, a screenwriting guru and uh, um, lecturer, she says, you know, characters are often either becoming more fully alive, meaning they're becoming more human, more of themselves, that the best part of who they are, or they're becoming the walking dead, not necessarily becoming a zombie, but becoming someone who is yeah. um, more embittered, more cynical, less human and less alive. And so these stories speak to that reality is we, we do, as Gandalf says, we do have a choice with how we will respond in that moment. Will we continue to, to follow God and trust that the author is good? Um, or will we abandon the quest and potentially become less fully human and less fully alive? Oh my goodness, this is so amazing. Um, let me just pause and try to help the audience connect the dots here on what yeah. you're saying. So what, what did Frodo say? He said, he said I, wish, I wish none of this would have happened to me. See, everyone in the audience has, and again, if you picture your yeah. life as a chapter book and yeah. we don't know where we're at in that, like I might be in my last chapter, mm-hmm. I don't know, or I may have 10 more chapters. Yeah. But if I look back on, on the chapters that have already come before this moment that I'm sitting with you, there's quite a few of those chapters yeah. that has me going, huh, yeah. why is this happening? Yeah. I, I don't want this to happen. Yeah. I didn't, you know, you get fired, you have a miscarriage, yeah. you have, I mean, we could go on and yeah. on and list these inciting incidents that all of us have in our life. Yeah. And they leave us, they leave us in a very raw emotional place. Yeah. But what you're suggesting is that uh, why we connect to story as humans is because we see ourselves in those stories. That's right. And that's what you're also suggesting is that if I will allow Mm. that inciting incident, that firing, that miscarriage, that um, we had to move, Mm. we had whatever that might be, that will launch me on a quest on a journey and I will either become a better person, more alive yeah. or less of a person, more of a zombie. But I, I get that choice. Yeah. You get that choice um, along the way. And um, what's, what's I think so powerful about this is we, we look in scripture and we see that like in the story of Joseph, one terrible reversal or inciting incident happened to him one after the other. Mm-hmm. You can imagine what he was thinking in those terrible, lonely, dark years when he was imprisoned and wrongly ac- accused and wondering why, I don't understand this, like why is this happening to me? Years of silence that I think as, as any of us might, you know, rail against the darkness wondering, you know, God, I, I don't understand. This makes no sense. And yet we get the the benefit, as did he, where he was able to see after a lot of very painful, difficult, terrible years where God was able to do the seemingly impossible, which was to bring beauty out of ashes, light out of darkness, and redeem a seemingly impossible situation. Why? Because God was authoring his story in a way that was bigger than I think he even could have anticipated. We think about in Romans, God works all things for the good of those who love him. What's particularly powerful about looking at that from a storytelling perspective is 
An author cares deeply about every detail of a character's life. Nothing is there by accident. In fact, those things that plague and hurt and, and seemingly harm the character the most, that is where a, a good author will, will use those events, those experiences in a character's life to bring about a potential transformation, the greatest good. And that's ultimately what they're after. A character thinks, hey, this story really is about, you know, Rocky is saying, it's really about me trying to beat Apollo Creed. But truly that story is about uh, a man who has to overcome his own sense of insecurity to say, do I have do I have the ability to go the distance? Mm. Am I just a bum? Mm -hmm. Am I just that? Is that my identity? Mm -hmm. Or is my identity that I'm heroic and I'm a champion? Yeah. Um, and that's true in our lives as well. We can think that life is, is solely about the pursuit of really good things, but God has a much bigger idea in mind, and that is transforming us um, into the kind of people that he wants us to become. And more often than not, he will use those very difficult, painful, confusing, disorienting events in our lives. Oh, there's nothing that transforms us more than pain. Yeah. And I hate, I hate that that's true. <laughs> you know, I really do. Too. Because if you've lived very many decades, you've gone through some really, really painful things. And this, Chad, yeah. this is one of the things that makes it so difficult with this is when you watch a movie yeah. or when you read a book or you, you refer to Joseph, you can read the story of Joseph in Genesis in about, I don't know, uh, 15 minutes. Yeah. You watch a movie and it's two hours, two... But in real life, those that inciting incident, it's you don't wake up two hours later or uh, move into the next stage two hours later. Yeah. Like a movie moves us through all those stages in yeah. two hours. But in real life, uh, you might be in that what one writer called the dark night of the soul for mm. weeks, yeah, or months, yeah, sometimes years, yeah. And that's what makes it. I mean, we connect with that that character on the screen, yeah. But in real life, we don't move through all of that in two hours. Yeah. It's weeks or months sometimes, right? And yeah. that's what makes those so difficult in our real lives. Yeah. And I think I think it, it's it's one thing that makes um, a really wonderful movie or TV show so compelling for us is that stories have the ability to, to yeah. take Good point. emotion um, and seemingly random events and bring meaning out of that. I mean, if you and I have, you know, if we have an experience today that's that's really hard or really great, probably what we're going to do is tell that and share that in the form of a story. We're not gonna like bring up our spreadsheet or you know, we're not gonna like put this on a PowerPoint. We make sense of our lives yeah. through story. You know, it's so so we're gonna move on from the okay. inciting incident in a moment, but this so radically changed the way I read story that even the way I started reading the Bible and back when I was preaching, mm. um, I started using this whole story structure and put it up on the screen sometimes. So when I preach the book of Jonah, mm. you read the book of Jonah and you see this exactly story, the exact story structure you're talking about. You see, we're introduced to this character. We see him in his ordinary mm. status quo. And then boom, there's this inciting incident that happens and will change his entire life. And he launches him on a quest on a journey. And then mm. you see this repeated conflict. Yeah. The book of Esther, one of my favorite books in the Bible, because it's such a powerful story. Yeah. Same thing. You, you, you open up to the story and you see this status quo, this king and queen in Persia and just yeah. life is normal and and boom, there's this inciting incident. It yeah. changes the entire, every character in the story is different after that. Yeah. Um. So I, again, I get excited by this because you see it in movies, you see it in books you read, mm. you see it in the books in the Bible that you read yeah. and it's in our, in our everyday life. Or yeah. This is why we connect to it. So let's yeah. jump into the next one. You talk about masks where you say every character wears a mask to protect themselves. Yeah. It's how they survive. The author 
is is writing the story in such a way that he's removing or she's removing the masks. That's right. Right. So a character um, has a way that you you get a sense of when you meet them in the inciting incident. So in the movie The King's Speech, um, Birdie, as he was known by his his close friends and family, um, was the heir. It was the second in line to the heir of uh, to, to, to be the next king of England. He wasn't the next direct. He was the he was the second in line, and he was someone as a result of um, a speech impediment that he he had struggled with and um, was filled with a lot of shame over, um, also in part because of, of how he was treated, um, really felt comfortable living in the shadows, sitting on the sidelines, um, living, in, living his life in the margins. And that's that was kind of his mask, if you will. He felt comfortable being... Um, you know, being being less than, I think that he really saw and knew it of himself. And as we know from history, his older brother abdicates the throne, and he's now thrust into the limelight, put into a position that he did not want. His inciting incident was his brother leaving the throne, and um, he now has to become the public face of the monarchy. And for someone who struggled with a speech impediment, this was just nothing but an utter horror to him. And so he had this way of living life that was, you know, this this way of coping with the world and getting along in the world that kind of worked for him for a time. But the author steps in and orchestrates events that will no longer allow him to live like that. He's confronted with a choice. Am I going to step into this journey of becoming the king, having to live and become heroic and courageous and face this thing that I'm so ashamed of? That has so much weakness for me, um, and in doing so, you know, will will he step into that and become more fully alive, become more human, or will he continue to live in the shadows? So for him, the worst thing imaginable happening becomes the catalyst for his story. Mm. And interestingly enough, the greatest act of redemption in his life. So every character has some kind of mask that they're wearing. Yeah, and these inciting incidents, this conflict, these dark nights of the soul. Yeah, start if we allow it to start removing those masks and stepping into who we, what we might say is who we really were meant to be. Yeah. You could call it the, the, the false self, if you will. We think about Paul, when he talks about the old man, you know, this inner civil war that he has with himself all the time. And he says, you know, why do I do the thing that I hate to do? It's, it's the old man and me. Well, um, from a storytelling standpoint, you could use the words, the false self. So it's, it's the way that we cope in the world. Mm. That, um, is how we, frankly, how we pose, if you will, how we do what, we, what other people expect of us, how we behave, whether it's religious or irreligious. It's, it's the way that we put on a kind of um, show for the world mm. that's not really authentic to who we are, but it's the way that we survive and we cope. And an author knows that a character won't really thrive and, sur- and, and live and flourish well if they continue to live from that, that, that mask. And that was Birdie's mask. It was Hey, I'm just gonna live in the shadows and be this kind of guy that doesn't really disrupt the status quo. And that choice is no longer left him. Yeah. And that happens all the time in our life. Will we continue to oh. live from the false self? Um, what you know, society or my parents expect of us, or will we follow God into the dangerous unknown and become more real, become more fully Isn't alive? It interesting. Yeah. Though that in story and in real life, which yeah. is why again I think we connect with story that generally we don't peel off those masks or maybe even recognize that we're wearing one of those masks yeah. without conflict, yeah. without that dark night of the soul, without that inciting incident. So I love that you use mm. the word survival, mm. that these masks help us survive. Yeah. Anytime that I've spent 
very much time visiting or getting to know someone's story, I'll generally eventually get around to asking them, what do you mm. think your internal vow is? Mm. Yeah. And what I mean by that, and I don't know where I got this. I heard it from somewhere, yeah. someone uh, a while ago. But usually when we're young, we take an internal vow mm. and we don't even realize it. It wasn't a conscious decision you made. Yeah. So if I'm being transparent and honest with our audience, I would say my internal vow, I didn't realize this till I was in my 40s, was yeah. I'll prove you wrong. Mm. You say, I can't do that. I'll prove you wrong. And it worked for me. So that's the thing. That mask actually protects and helps us to survive. And yeah. it works for a while yeah. until it doesn't. Yeah. Some people's internal vow may be, you know, they grew up in an abusive home or something. And they'll be like, I'll never let anybody hurt me like that again. Mm. And they don't realize they subconsciously took that internal vow, but it's yeah. affecting their relationships. Now they're not ever letting anybody in. Yeah. So I, I love for people, and I would ask our audience to do that, wrestle with what is your internal vow yeah. that you took? Yeah. Because I'll bet God is having them on yeah. a journey right now to recognize what that is. And it's probably through some hard things that yeah. you've gone through or are yeah. going through to help peel that mask off. Yeah. Right. That's that would is that what a mask would be? Absolutely. That that's such a such a powerful and compelling way of describing it. It makes me think of the movie Goodwill Hunting and Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, was someone who went through a lot of trauma and pain in his childhood. He grew up in the foster system experienced a lot of physical and emotional abuse. So, you know, rightfully so, here's a guy that's that's orphaned who um, is just trying his best to make his way in the world. But he came to a place um, before we meet him in that journey, which is I'm never going to let anybody get really close to me and really see me because if they do, they're going to abandon me. They're going mm -hmm. to reject me. And that story is about the unmasking of Will because his mask is he's really intelligent, off the charts, brilliance, and he's able to um, he's able to keep people at an arm's length. And so his story is there are these characters, these relationships that come into his life that confront him with that. Skylar, the woman that he's dating, and um, Sean, his therapist, played by um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting is it Robin Williams uh, that just does such a masterful job. Yeah, and they lovingly confront him and and say that you know you're 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 living from this place of inauthenticity where nobody can get close to you, and so that's so true in our lives. We all have these 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 areas of hurt and woundedness and trauma and pain that we can respond to life and say, you know what, I'm never going to fill in the blank of a, a vow like you're saying, and what can often happen is God will often use the events in our lives to help free us from those masks that are effectively prisons mm -hmm. that we live in. We mm -hmm. think that there's life yep. to be found. Yep. We think that there's a way to flourish, but the author is going to use what feels so counterintuitive to us um, to, to free us from those masks so that we become more real. We and become more fully alive. Deceptive about those masks yeah. is they actually did work for us. For yeah. Like they maybe were, that's why I love that you were used the word survival. Yeah. Maybe as a seven-year-old kid, you did need to say, I'm not going to let anybody in yeah. because I'm not going to be hurt like that. And that was, you had to survive the next two or three years with that. Yeah. So it worked for you. Yeah. But now it's not working anymore. And masks can be so deceptive, which again, I want the audience to connect it. We're going from storytelling sometimes yeah, to their life. To real life. So let me do that with you. Okay. What were some of the things that you've come to realize that God has had some masks or some things that he peeled away through your journey? Yeah, I think one of the biggest is, is trusting that the author, that God is um, a father who deeply cares and who's so... 
um, involved in the details of my life, but my worth is not built around what I do. It's not built around productivity, that he, he loves me for me. And um, I think that the mass that, that I have had and still have and still can wrestle with at times is that my worth and value comes from my productivity. It comes through what I do. It comes through my success. And uh, boy, in our culture, that that sure is something that can be oh, so man, seductive. Culture feeds it's, into that. Well, yeah, it's usually like when you're at a get together or a party. It's hey, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, we can inadvertently sort of measure each other up by our, um, especially as men, as areas of of success or not success. Where God has such a bigger and deeper paradigm. It's it's not that those things are unimportant, but you are absolutely immeasurably treasured as my son. It doesn't matter what you do. It's ultimately who you are. You know, you think about when Jesus was launched into his public ministry, the first thing that God did was he said, you are my son and who I am well pleased. Before Jesus did anything, he had no ministry record up until that point. And I think that that... He hadn't accomplished the very thing he was sent here to accomplish. And his father was already saying, I'm just crazy about you. You're the beloved. Yeah. Yeah, before Before you do anything. And I think it's for me, it can often be a lifelong battle of, well, I have to do something. We've talked about this before yeah. over coffee. Yeah. You're an Enneagram three, aren't you? I, I, think, I think so. Think yeah, I think I, I'm a three. I think you probably are <laughs> since you struggle with it because, you know, someone may, if they don't know the Enneagram, Enneagram three is uh, significance is very important to us. Yeah. I'm an Enneagram three. Yeah. If you ain't winning, you're sinning. Yeah. That's that, good. That, that's, that's the way we feel <laughs> about life. Sticker, yeah. But it is, it's, that's, a, that's an ongoing battle for an Enneagram three. Yeah is to learn that my worth and my value is not based on my accomplishments. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is why failure is rocks our world so often. It rocks anybody's world, but especially an Enneagram 3, and to recognize uh, especially with yeah. God or the people that are yeah. close to us in our life that, that really value us. Yeah. Um, our significance to them isn't based on our success. Yeah. That's a tough one. And really the only way we start learning that usually is not from successes, through failure and it's pain failure and hardship and, and setback and wish, yeah, all the fun stuff of life, right? <laughs> I wish it was like you and I could sit here and go like, yeah, yeah, so where'd you learn that lesson? Well, I won like five straight things and I learned that winning yeah. really didn't matter that much. That's mm-hmm. not the way it usually is. Yeah. It's something tragic happened. Or, yeah. 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 More often than not. Yeah. So, okay, this third one, this third point of story structure. You talked about uh, unwilling devils as instruments of grace when yeah. we met once. You yeah. said there's these unwilling devils as instruments of grace. Yeah. I had a teacher uh, years ago. Um, her name is Barbara Nicolosi, and she she shared this, and it's from a book by Flannery O'Connor, who was a um, she was a novelist, uh, a woman of faith, and she she wrote this book that that kind of shared her own understanding of storytelling principles, and she said the most powerful stories that we have been told, that we've experienced, use a principle called um, uh, using a an unwilling devil as an instrument of grace. And it's like, well, what is that? What does that mean? And so I think one, one neat example of that is at the end of the Return of the King um, in the Lord of the Rings series, uh, Frodo, who his quest was to take this, this small, insignificant, seemingly insignificant ring, this ring of power, um, and take it into a really dangerous place, um, into the heart of a volcano and, and drop it there because that was the only way it would be destroyed and save his world, save, save the lives of those that he knew. So it was a really treacherous, hard, difficult journey. And he gets there and Frodo was someone who was really kind and decent and courageous. 
Um, and he gets to the to the end of the journey and he can't do it. He's the the, the ring had the ability to corrupt anybody. And he's been I'm slowly picturing this scene yeah. in my head right now. I, I <laughs> know exactly the scene you're talking about. Oh, it's so it's so good. It's so visceral. Yep. And so so Frodo, he gets he gets to the volcano and he can't bring himself to do it. He's becoming more corrupted by this ring. And Tolkien, when he was writing this, he said, as I was writing this moment, the little author A stepped back and the big author A stepped in. And one of the primary antagonists of the story is this character named Gollum, who's been fighting and, and, and following after Frodo to try to, to get the ring himself. And he attacks Frodo. He, in this really kind of gnarly moment, bites his finger off, bite Frodo's finger off, and the ring of power drops into the volcano along with Gollum, the villain. It's, it's a traumatic ending. It's something that Frodo has the inability to do. And it, it, it takes this unwilling devil Gollum, this this villainous character, to do something horrible that becomes a means of grace because Frodo in of himself can't do it. He has the inability to do it. And my goodness, I, I think we all have those experiences in life where we we think um, that it's about us striving and pursuing the goal. And sometimes really good things. I want to I want to make an impact or or start this nonprofit or help someone, and that's really good. But um, what stories can teach us is that we don't have the ability in of ourselves to fully complete it. We need an incredible act of grace and mercy, an ongoing act of grace and mercy in our lives. Um, and that's, that points us to the, to the ultimate story, to God's story, that, um, that in those critical moments, it's the big author that steps into our story. It's the big author that, that, carries, that, that, that carries our shoulders, that carries our burdens. It's, it's he's the one that comes in those dark nights of the soul that does the seemingly impossible. He takes the worst thing of our lives, if we let him, um, and and can bring something truly beautiful and redeeming out of it. And that's the ultimate picture of that is on the cross. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that moment, as Jesus hung on the cross, it was considered uh, in the Roman Empire, and for those that saw him, the most humiliating, grotesque, unbelievable. How could a God, a God-man, die like this? Uh, Jesus was most likely naked when he hung on the cross. It was it would have been con conceived as utterly astonishing yeah. and humiliating. And, well, and I'll get really graphic here yeah. because I, you know, studied about crucifixion and everything because we rightly so we glorified a little bit. So we had the crucifixes, and you don't want to have it. But I mean, yeah. he would have had urine and feces running down his leg and blood and yeah. running all over him, and it would have stunk and it would have yeah. been. Just, and that's your whole point is is like there was nothing godlike about him hanging on that cross. The, the complete it opposite of dignified. Yeah, yeah. But but far worse than that, it was the, the utter abandonment from God uh, that, that caused him to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's really fascinating is, is Tim Keller um, had pointed out, he was, he was quoting David from the Psalms. He was, he was literally bleeding scripture. He was quoting that. Why? Because he, he had the full, fully formed story of God in his mind and his heart, even as he was dying on the cross. And so God took the worst thing imaginable, and that was the defeat of evil. Um, in the world and in our lives. And so if we look at that and we look at what Jesus has done and we say, gosh, that was, uh, I can't believe that would happen. Then, we, then, then it gives us the ability to look at our lives and go in those situations where we say, how could anything good come of this? How? Like, yeah, that's great. That happened to a story in a character movie. That's really interesting. But we have 
the ultimate example of that to look at and point to. Well, and that's so, again, to connect it to the audience, there, I, I guess you could say there's forks in the road that all yeah. of us have, right? Yeah. And I thought I was going to go there. Yeah. But but because of this unwilling devil, I ended up going this way. Yeah. And I can, pro- after being living 51 years on this planet, yeah. I can promise if enough time goes by, you'll look back. And it does take time sometimes, yeah. but you'll look back and you go like, oh, yeah, that was painful. Yeah. I didn't want that. I wanted to go that direction. I wanted to stay in that job. Mm. I wanted to have the, whatever it might be. Yeah. But, oh, thank God Yeah. that that unwilling devil came and took me down this other path. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. We can have we can have these experiences. And I think more often than not, life can feel really random and disconnected or really just seemingly ordinary. Mm. Um, and my wife and I will often joke, it's like, does life just feel like one long like to-do list? Like you get up, you gotta get this done and this done and figure out the 401k and this, that, and the other. Yep. And and that's true. Like those, those are like the details of our lives. But I think what's so powerful about this is as as scripture calls us to to remember, like there's something bigger and deeper that's always at work. And there's an author who's way more involved and invested in your life than you could hardly imagine and, and even comprehend. And then it gives us cause to go in those moments where life feels really dark and really hard and really confusing. Will I trust the author? Will he bring about good? Um, or am I on my own on this? Mm-hmm. A perfect example was the story that you told earlier, the story of Joseph. Mm. And if a listener doesn't know, it's it's the story is told in like the last part of the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. But at the end of that, once Joseph is able to look, a lot of years have gone by. Yeah. So there's a lot of pain in there where yeah. he didn't know and he might have been going, why? Yeah. Why is this happening? But eventually he goes, what you meant for harm, yeah. God worked for good. Yeah. Which is, you were the unwilling devils yeah. were used yeah. to, to, in fact, if you know the story, save an entire nation of people. Yeah. So let's go to the last one, conflict. Yeah. Um, I think it was you who quoted this to me, and I've used it so many times. Conflict is to story what sound is to music. Mm. That you can't have music without sound. Mm. And there's no good story yeah. without a lot of conflict. Yeah. Which again, we hate conflict in our life. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. My my wife has shared she's a, a really talented musician and how, you know, music is made with tension and uh, the parallel for stories is is conflict, or you could use the word tension too. Is that um, you can have a minimal amount of settings, you know, minimal amount of characters, but if you don't have meaningful, intentionally designed conflict, you don't have a great story. It is the skeleton of the story. It's the the main ingredient, if you will. And I think it's it's not just conflict from the standpoint of things that are happening to the character or bad things, it's intentionally designed conflict that the author is going to move a character forward in their story. Events are going to take place that oftentimes are disorienting and confusing and will will allow the character to have choices along the way that they are active agents in the unfolding of their own personal dramas and stories. But the author will bring in characters and situations that continually confront characters like with their mask and have them have to deal with their own issues and their own baggage. And the story becomes way more about who that character is becoming, who they're transforming into um, than their goal. So Goodwill Hunting, um, the author used intentionally designed conflict. So it's it's Will the therapist confronting, or I'm sorry, it's Sean the therapist confronting um, Will, when he's sitting on that bench and he's saying, you know, do you know what it's like to look up at the Sistine Chapel and stare at that? You know, you're a guy that can just quote and know all about Michelangelo, but do you know what that's like? 
that's an intentionally designed moment for Will, for him to have to really wrestle with himself and his own false way of living life. Um, and, and that's really true is that the author is going to use intentionally designed conflict. So the parallel for our lives is it could be that, um, that coworker that's really frustrating or annoying to you wondering like, is this just someone to deal with? And that's sort of one lens or one perspective to look at it. Or, um, is this someone who's been orchestrated in my story and me for them? And how might God want to be changing me through this? Through this experience or just the ordinary hassles of everyday life we could just look at it like that or is the author up to something bigger in our lives and i think as we continue to kind of press into that perspective we start to see that there's a lot of um there's a lot of really beautiful and interesting and dynamic things that are happening in our lives as, as john piper has said there's probably a million things that are happening in your life at any given time. You know, all the different strands that the author is is weaving together. That we don't realize. We don't realize. We probably yeah. only see a few, yeah. but this helps us to get, I think, a little bit closer to that. Well, and this is why I love our conversation, and I'll, and I'll end with this. But um, it should change our perspective yeah. or the lens that we look through. Because if pain and suffering is just meaningless, accidental mm. things— you know, for so much of humanity, that's what it has been to them, yeah. which is where I think, again, the yeah. author that you keep referring to, God, yeah. consistently reminds us it's not. Mm. It's not. It's not that 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 I'm causing this pain. We live in a broken world, yeah. so there's some things that happen to us. It's not that God causes that, but he's yeah. allowing it, but, he, yeah. but he's going, but I'm not going to waste it. Yeah that if we allow that pain and that suffering or that annoying coworker or yeah. whatever it yeah. might be and we look deep enough and hard enough it'll change our perspective to say this this could help yeah my story yeah in becoming who god made me to be yeah i love that you know the, the truth of it that that's so good pat the, the truth of it is there's we're always telling ourselves a story we're always making sense of the world through a story i mean the word worldview is effectively a story of the world and so you know, one of those those false stories can be is I'm really just on my own here to make it work, and and life is about getting what you can. Or another story that we're often told is, you know, life is about living the designer life, right? Meaning, like I wanna, and again, nothing wrong with this, but you know, it's about having the spouse and the several kids and the white picket fence, and you know, building up the 401k, and those are all really good things. Um, but if if that's your story, if that's all that reality is for you. Um, that's really the, the measure of, of, of what life is and its significance. But if life is bigger than that, if it's greater than that, if it's more dynamic and compelling than that, then it really opens up things to a dimension that we go, that other, those other stories are not true, but this one that God's inviting to is eternal and energizing and transforming. And even the worst things in my life will somehow be good in the end, even if I can't see it. God's a great recycler. Yes, that's he good. Won't wait, he won't waste the hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Chad, thank you so much. I told the audience, and I'm sure many of you are agreeing with me, you're never going to watch movies again. You're going to be <laughs> looking for the inciting incident, and yeah. you're going to be looking for the mask that, that, that the author is, is, is trying to mm. peel back from the character, and you're going to be seeing these reversals you talked about, yeah. right, where there's these continual inciting incidents. You'll be watching how this conflict is growing in the story, and as you get close to the culmination, we're all sitting there going, are they going to survive? Are they going to make mm. it? Are they going to learn? And that's what makes story powerful, but it's our story. Yeah. Every one of us has a similar story. And so I would encourage the audience, mm. 
start paying attention to look back in your life. What were the inciting incidents? Mm. What are the inciting incidents might be happening now? Yeah. In the future, yeah. when you go through something, pay attention to it and then be asking the question, yeah. what might the author of life be wanting to teach me through this? That's really good. Well, Chad, thanks so much. How, how can people get a hold of you? How could people connect with you? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll have my my info here um, in the, the show notes. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I do brand and uh, creative solutions for nonprofits um, and businesses and really help them to, to tell their stories uh, in a variety of different facets. It's perfect because we just got the entire, this entire yeah. podcast was a power of story. Yeah. And you're saying what you do is you really help brands understand what is your story? Right. What is it that the world needs to know about who you are and why you do what you do? So yeah. that's what you do. So we'll have that in the description right. um, below this on all of our audio platforms and YouTube as well and our social media platforms as well. We'll have that information for them. So Two truths and a lie. Okay. We've known each other for 15 <laughs> years. There's no way you're going to stump me. Give me two truths and a lie. Ironic because this is no gray areas and I'm asking you to lie to me. Yeah. So um, I've taken a kayak down um, kind of a series of rapids, like class four rapids just by myself. Um, my grandfather was the first person in Arizona to receive penicillin, which was considered an experimental drug. And both of my grandfathers stole John Wayne's cigarettes and got in trouble from him for it. <laughs> Those are good. Those are really good because I have no idea. <laughs> um, the John Wayne one's got to be true because it's so far out there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that is true. That is true. So they yeah. both sold. Okay, for the younger viewers, John Wayne, uh, iconic Western actor. Yeah. I don't know how probably over a hundred films he's been in. Oh, tons. They yeah. both stole the cigarettes. They were like 18 and at slide rock up, up near, uh, yeah, Sedona. Sedona. And they see this truck he shot a lot of Westerns. Up yeah, there. yeah. He did. Yeah. He did a lot of Westerns up in that area. And, uh, so my grand, my, both of my grandfathers, funny enough, were, were friends with one another and they saw this truck and there was like cigarettes on the dashboard and they're like, yeah, these are free. Let's take it. And so they started smoking it and thinking they're Lords of creation. And they hear this, this voice behind him saying, boys do you know whose cigarettes those are and they turn up and it's john wayne who's like eclipsing the yeah, sun and they're like yeah. we're sorry mr wayne and so <laughs> we always tell that at like family get togethers yeah. and he was a big man too he's like six four or something like that so he probably was blocking out the sun very yeah. intimidating yeah yeah okay um uh i'm gonna say the rapids uh, that's the lie that is the lie. I got that it. That is the lie. That's good. That's good. I spent some time doing like whitewater rafting and whatnot, but never on a kayak. Yeah. Yeah. Kayaks, that's a different, that's a whole different thing with, yeah. than whitewater rafting. Okay. So what was the first one that you the said? The first one was my grandfather. It, it was true. My, my, oh, uh, the penicillin. Yeah. Man. He was the first person in the state of Arizona to, he got in a terrible car accident when he was in his early twenties and he uh, got rushed to the, uh, you know, the hospital and they, they administered penicillin at the time. It was uh, an experimental drug. And they weren't sure. Was it, man, isn't that crazy yeah. to think that that was for you and me one generational ago? It's pretty wild. Where they were doing something that's so common now. I know. He's just getting a bottle now. And yeah. for him, it was like, is this thing even going to be safe? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, Chad, thank you so much for sharing with us. It's and, been great. Um, I, I really do believe that if we allow it, this mm. can be a complete perspective change for us and transformational. Yeah. So thank you. You bet. It's been great. Thanks, Pat. Wow. What a transformational message Chad D. Miguel leaves with us. To see more incredible guests like Chad in the future, make sure to subscribe to our channel, thumbs up this video, and comment below one or two of your most powerful inciting incidences as Chad discussed. Thanks for watching and listening. See you next time.